Hello and welcome to Music Speaks. This podcast dedicates itself to how music impacts people's lives. For the show, we usually have three co-hosts, myself, Hunter Sagona, our friend Mary Haddock Termins, our friend Sean Rim Kunis. Um, myself, Mary, and Sean believe that many people have a playlist that makes your life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge with our featured guests, jamming to incredible music, talking about a wide variety of artists and composers, and everything in between. And the quote of the day, or maybe the week, whatever whatever part works for you, is this. Music expresses that which cannot be said and on which is impossible to be silent. Victor Hugo. And today we have with us my friend Carl Trammell, who, um, well, we've known each other for a while now. Anyways, um, so Carl comes from us, or comes to us from Lexington, Kentucky, um, Carl G. Trammell. Um, and for the last 10 years, he's acted in, directed, stage managed, sound designed, produced, and written numerous shows, like just one of my favorite people ever. Um, he does so much. And most recently, he directed uh, Image Theater's production of the Scottish play. Um, other roles include Assassins, like uh, Balladeer, Lee Harvey Oswald's version, um, Matilda, the escapologist, and um, American Idiot, where he played Johnny, and To Kill a Mockingbird. And he was Nathan Andrew Radley in that. So, are you ready, Carl? Oh, uh, yeah. Happy to be here? I'm very happy to be here. I'm uh, very excited to talk about this because uh, you all have uh, you all tapped me to talk about uh, one of my favorite topics on the planet: obscure musicals. <laughs> so uh, these are uh, so uh, so these are all shows that have been um, uh, that I've just either discovered either uh, through watching them on uh, on TV, like maybe they had been on. Uh, the very first one that I listed, I actually saw the Tony Awards performance of it uh, until I, uh, before I, I even knew what the show was about, and that one performance alone made me uh, super interested in it. And other times I've just like discovered them on you know Spotify, and other times just uh, uh, just uh, researching like what other uh, like what other works that some of these composers have, uh, have uh, had up their sleeve. And uh, full disclosure, one of them is actually on this list twice. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, that's, uh, so yeah. Well. So uh, so so, we're, uh, so we're, uh, starting from uh, top to bottom with this one, or do you want to uh, work from uh, number ten and go upwards? <laughs> All right, and welcome to this episode of Music Speaks. Um, again, we have my friend Carl here, and Carl has brought us a list of ten like he said, obscure musicals or, um, you know, pieces from them. And I'm, I'm so excited. We've talked about this a couple times so far. And um, so we're just going to work down the list one by one. And the first one on our list is A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. And Carl picked uh, Poison in My Pocket to showcase. So Carl, tell me, why, why is this the first one on your list? Uh... For one thing, uh, this is my favorite musical of all time, so that's why it's so that's why it's the first one. <laughs> and uh, the whole um, and uh, the whole idea of this song is that it kind of encapsulates what the entire show is about. It's loosely based on this plot from this uh, old film from, from the '30s called Kind Hearts and Coronets, uh, where the setup is this uh, young man who was raised in poverty 
finds out that he's suddenly he uh, his mother passes away and he finds out that he's related to the wealthy aristocrats that have disinherited his mother. So in order to exact his revenge and claim his birthright, he decides to eliminate them one by one. But the way that Gentleman's Guy did it was that they took that same story, but they made the whole fun of the show the fact that the family is played by one actor. <laughs> so uh, so every other scene, uh, they have this overly comical death scene for every individual member. Um, I'm not going to say whether or not he succeeds in his goal, because that will uh, defeat the purpose of seeing it. But this is a song... <laughs> Uh, Poison in my pocket is one of the is one of the uh, uh, is one of the songs where he does where he does successfully commit one of the murders, <laughs> and it's a it's a nice little uh, trio uh, it's a nice little trio between um, one of the one of the members of the family the woman he's taking on a date and then uh, the main character Monty who's just uh, nebulously in the background trying to plot how he's going to slip the poison to him because they're standing on an ice rink. <laughs> And uh, it's like, okay, uh, and in the middle of the song, Monty very clearly reveals, he's like, okay, maybe I didn't really think this through. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he's just, uh, so uh, there's a repeated lyric that he, has, uh, that he has throughout the song that says, uh, I am standing here with poison in my pocket. And uh, he clearly doesn't know if he's going to be able to use it because he thinks, because he uh, must have brought it under the wrong circumstance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen Gentleman's Guide uh, once I saw it on like a uh, tape. I've never seen it live. Um, but the, the comedy aspects in it, like uh, one thing that I noticed about, uh, yeah, uh, sorry, let me back up. Like there are so many good musicals out there and every one of them has a funny bone in it. And it, it just seems like, you know, the more obscure they are, the funnier they are to me often you have a really good list here <laughs> so. uh just uh i'm gonna remember that you said that because that'll come ahead to uh some of the more let's uh, say uh questionable options later down the line <laughs> so, yeah. Mm -hmm. but yeah they are yeah most of them do have a certain degree of uh do have a, a fair degree of comedy uh to them but this one's intentionally made as a forest comedy like the over-exaggerated way that all that uh like that the members are killed off uh, the whole setup of um, the whole setup of uh, the subplot being the love part of the title, where he's uh, where he's uh, seeing a mistress, but then he ends up marrying somebody else, and then there's just like this whole. Uh, it's not even it's not even really a love triangle because they all simultaneously agree to it. So it's also the only uh, musical I know where the main character ends in a polyamorous relationship. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think this thing might might have been a little ahead of its time. Oh uh, yeah. So poison in my pocket. Um, there's a lot of alliteration in that, and you mentioned that you had a favorite line from the tune. Sean is uh, our resident slam poet, and um, he's always talking about lyrics. So, do the words speak to you more, or does the music speak to you more in this particular tune? Uh, really, it's more so about the words, because uh, every other, because every other sentence, and I didn't even realize this until like maybe my third or fourth time listening to the song on its own. Um, but some of the lyric, but like almost every other lyric ends with something that rhymes with pocket. If I had truly taken stock, it would have stopped me putting poison in my pocket. What a fool to travel all this way, nothing twice. Um, uh, still, it comes as quite a shock. It seems I won't need the poison in my pocket, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so, yeah. That was very impressive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
Yeah. And uh, Monty's entire Monty's entire version that all three time almost every single time he's singing he's always doing it in a patter. So. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. The um like the use of of rhythm and pattern um is so integral to like musical form in general. It's always fun mm-hmm. to see how um especially like in musical theater, it's it's taken and completely overdone just completely over the top mm-hmm. so yeah i definitely agree with that sentiment and um yeah this one uh yeah this song definitely uh definitely in one in one song alone if somebody wasn't familiar with the, with the show on its own the most popular song in the entire show is called i've decided to marry you but that one is largely uh largely caters to the subplot i feel like this one caters a little more to the main plot so if somebody was unfamiliar with this one this is the song that i would recommend for them if they want to get an idea of what the show's about yeah you're right the <clears throat> the mainstream one it doesn't seem like it caters to the entirety of the the musical work yeah. Yeah, because yeah, because that song is about about the love part. This one's clearly about the murder part. So, yeah, well, to each their own, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, Sean Hunter, did you guys have anything you wanted to ask about Gentleman's Guide? About Gentleman's Guide, you know, it's interesting about Gentleman's Guide, um, Carl, is the relationship to English comedy. Um, mm in the relationship that it has to some of the really great musicals that are based on English comedy. So when I thought of um, the song that you brought in, it kind of reminded me of um, this musical that I played in a while ago. Um, it's it's sort of like this, um, what was I going to say? Uh, it's based on this book by Charles Dickens. I can't remember the name of it. Oh, Edwin Drood. You ever heard of Edwin? Yeah, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, yes. <laughs> so when you when you talked about um, Poison in My Pocket, exactly reminded me of that song that's like it's like the switch on the it's like the like the flip of the coin song mm-hmm. in a way. And one of my favorite moments in that is that I got to see the two <laughs> the two actors who were super like they were struggling with that song so hard, but like it brought them together so close. And I think that's what um, I think musical comedy, England, you know, and stuff like that. That's kind of what I thought about this tune was how English comedy can really be such a such a tool. And and something that I found so interesting is that they really get comedy a lot different than we do because I feel like in a way it's a little dirtier over there than it is over here. Do you kind of agree with that or disagree? With that? Yeah, the what most everybody finds funny is subjective, and uh, I feel like uh, I feel like a British comedy has a lot more of a uh, a little bit more of a, a little bit more of a zing to it because, like, because as you as you say, they do get away with a little more risque stuff, and therefore we find it a little more relatable somehow. Um, yeah, because. Uh, yeah, and they did. T- they did um, take a lot of. In- they actually did take a, l- uh, a lot of influence from shows like like Edwin Drood and uh, other and other classics. Uh, other classics like uh, you know Monty Python or um, uh, what was the other one? Uh, yeah, the one that's not Monty Python. But yeah. But yeah, um, it's also interesting because uh, they they started with this. Uh, they started writing this one in 2003 and they spent 10 years perfecting it because they wanted to make sure it was 
because they wanted to make sure it had the same uh, style and uh, the style and atmosphere of something that would have come out in 1913 when the show was supposed to take place, even though it was going to come out after after the turn of the millennium. Right. So. I'm actually going to throw the next one over to Hunter because Hunter has the next one. Hunter, what do you got over there? All right. Um, for this one or for the next one? Oh, for the next one, my friend. What do you got for the next one? Of course. So for the next one, we're taking a complete 180-degree spin. Um, and more, if we could even you know go that far. To um, 35 millimeters, um, which I believe the full title is uh, 35 millimeter, the musical exhibition, I think is the... Spot on. 35 millimeter musical exhibition. And, you know... I was highly unfamiliar with the musical, which I guess is the point of the ones that you chose. Although I do know Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, so I suppose that wasn't entirely true. And Catch Me If You Can, which is not mine, but it's the next one, so. Um, but Sean has that. Anyway, point being is you chose the piece, The Seraph. And I found it really difficult to find any sort of concrete information about this musical. Everything I found was like the what's the word I'm looking for, like the um, artistic summary of the point of the show, like it's the relationship between, you know, uh, photos and and, and um, pictures worth a thousand words, all that kind of stuff. Um, the actual concrete aspects of the play, I, I still am relatively unfamiliar with, so you'll have to fill us in in terms of um, the, the, the plot or at least the uh, progression of events. Um, and I guess my first question will be, how were you introduced to it? Was it one of the you listening and just happening upon it? Or did you have to see it somewhere? Or because I think it was, what, 2013? Uh, this actually came out in 2009. Uh, it, made it, to, yeah, it made it to Off-Broadway debut uh, in 2009. And um, it was one of the first big, it was one of the first uh, big projects from then upcoming uh, pretty, uh, then upcoming composer Ryan Scott Oliver, who is my favorite musical theater composer, <laughs> which I asked and, about later. Yeah, and he um, uh, he wrote the uh, the idea being that uh, he wrote the Seraph, the first song for thirty five millimeter, as a love song to his husband Matthew Murphy, who all the photographs are based on. And yeah, uh, it doesn't actually have an overarching narrative because not every musical has an overarching narrative plot. But mm -hmm. the idea being that they're all they're all uh, all the songs are stories that are based on specific photographs. But this one was inspired by uh, this one was inspired by a mural that he had seen of you know an you know, essentially an angels because that's essentially what uh, Sarah, Sarah right. is is a, it's a guardian angel of sorts, and he wrote it for his husband according to the commentary that they put on YouTube, which I found extremely helpful and insightful. Uh, according to the commentary they put on it, he wrote this song. Three days into dating his husband, <laughs> really? they weren't even they weren't, they weren't even, uh, they weren't even considering getting married yet, and he had to stop and pull back and be like, "Okay, I need to make these lyrics kind of kind of obscure enough that they can be almost about anything." <laughs> but yeah, but, uh, yeah. That's pretty funny. But uh, even before I knew that, the reason that the uh, the reason that that song speaks to me personally is because. Um, I feel like everybody has this idea. Uh, everybody has varying ideas of spirituality and religion, but this one like really speaks to me on a personal level because I am uh, somewhat spiritual. But the other, but the other part of this is um, uh, this is only uh, this is only one song that occurs like halfway through the show because the style and tone of the show is 
so incredibly random and it's and there's uh there's even an argument that some of the songs don't gel together uh but which i can't totally disagree with but i feel like they all do serve a specific purpose um and yeah the way that i have it upon this one was i was listening to a different ryan scott ryan scott oliver musical which is a little further down the list that we'll talk about later um but it said on the bottom of the um but i was looking up like you know uh production rights uh, if I wanted to uh, produce it with the nonprofit that I run. And it said, if you like this musical, other viewers really also like uh, jazz, or, um, 35 millimeter. And I got really curious and I found the, uh, and I found the soundtrack and I started listening to it. And uh, for anybody who's listening, those purists out there who's like, soundtrack doesn't exist. It's called a cast recording. Shut up. We're not <laughs> listening to you guys. It's called a soundtrack. It's easier for us. Okay, get off your high horse. So, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so, yeah, I found the soundtrack for 35mm, and I sat down and I listened to every individual song, and uh, all of them seem to have a different degree of um, not only relatability, but also a different level of storytelling. Like, some of the songs are really intense. Some of them are really sorrowful. Some of them are so... Uh, are, some of them are so unapologetically insane it's kind of hard to, to imagine what he was thinking when he was writing them <laughs> but yeah yeah this is only a one example and i think this is one of the few ballads in the show that really really does hit home for a lot of people as well so mm-hmm. and so that sort of answers my next question which was that you know the rest of the song uh, or rather the the rest of the soundtrack to the musical um would you have described the rest of the pieces as being cohesive in that they follow a specific genre, which clearly they don't, if that's, if you're saying that, you know, they, they don't quite necessarily mesh together, but relate thematically in terms of like the overall arching theme of the show. Mm-hmm. At its core, uh, mo- at its core, most of the time it is a rock musical. Uh, the mm-hmm. Seraph, however, is the only song in the show that's only accompanied with an acoustic guitar. Yeah. And, even immediately after following, um, there's a really, really intense uh, song after the after the set, after the third transition called "Leave Luann," which is this really, really aggressive sounding, really aggressive sounding like rock power ballad. It's really emotional. It's really, um, yeah, and it really and it really needs to come with a TW warning because that song is really, really intense. Um, but it's immediately followed by an SATB acapella quartet which none of the other songs are like that so so yeah uh, so yeah it does so it does vary in all uh, different styles and then i have to admit i wasn't smart enough to pick up on the fact that it's like okay so wait a minute what's the title about oh wait 35 millimeter like a 35 millimeter camera duh camera (laughs) well that's why i was confused with the title at first and then when i saw the album cover i was like oh i get it now um yeah but my, you know, you brought up the acoustic guitar. That was one of my questions. Was, um, you know, some I know some people they are big into acoustic music, you know, or not acoustic music, acoustic guitar. Um, it's like their favorite instrument. They love acoustic guitar music. And then I know some people who, like my mother, for instance, um, when she hears the acoustic guitar, she grits her teeth. Like she she cannot stand it. Um, some people find it very emotional, very real, very soulful. Um, or you're like her who just finds it annoying, apparently. And uh, 
I'm curious if that was part of the draw to the song. Like, are you someone who does enjoy acoustic guitar music or are you someone who, you know, you were first drawn to the lyrics and there and then you just you appreciate the use of it as a means of creating the song? I feel like it's a very uh, I feel like it's a very personal thing for me because uh, pretty much I think this might go without saying, Mary, this might not surprise you, but pretty much everybody in my immediate family is a musician <laughs> and <laughs> I uh, and I have an older sister, and both my and both my parents have been together for uh, since '89, uh, and all three of them can play the guitar except for me. I was the only one who learned how to do oh, really? piano until my sister got into college. So, uh, and not, that's not for lack of trying, but I've always loved the way that it sounded. I really wanted to. I really wanted to teach myself how to play over the years. I know it's not too late, but it's just that uh, it's going to require a lot of uh, time and patience that I'm probably not going to be willing to spare but i do love but i think i like i like the combination of both the lyrics and the instrumentation but i lean a little bit more toward the instrumentation because i'm a bit of a minimalist in that way uh the smaller you can make something i feel like the more powerful it can be so mm -hmm. so i think well, so i think that's I, I think that's i think that's what uh yeah <laughs> no no that's i, I was just curious because you know like you said it, it's uh or, or I guess like we both said, you know, it's something individualized. It says something different to everyone. Um, everyone relates to it differently. So I'm just curious because I find it to be a very polarizing instrument as opposed to something like, you know, the piano or full orchestra. Um, but speaking of another musical that seems to follow absolutely no uh, set genre, Sean wants to ask a little bit about Catch Me If You Can. That is right. Not for segues, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so excited to talk to you about this song because... Uh, the singer and I have a connection, actually, uh, Carl, and that is really? that uh, me and Aaron did go to the same school, uh, all modern, which is Ithaca College, but he only went for a year, so it might have counted, mm -hmm. might not count. So he, was, so he was still in New York around that time. I, I, I think so. I think so. So, you know, he got there a little before I did, but just, just throwing it out there, I was also there, too. No, okay. Um, this song is such an interesting song because it – isn't the end, but the song we, we, we I'm, I'm kind of surprised we haven't talked about this yet. But um, feeling meta about certain songs is, is really cool, and you might have addressed that in the, in the first couple of songs. Um, and and I find that this song is so meta, and I find that a lot of the songs that I believe I can't remember the, the name of the main character. Of the, uh, of the Frank Abagnale Jr. There you go, Frank. I find that Frank's a lot of his songs seem meta and seem towards the audience. So I'm just, I'm just, I'm just curious. In in your case, what is your take on that? Reason for that is actually the way that the show is set up at the very start, uh, because uh, it toured through uh, Lexington several years ago. I want to say it was a uh, 2012 or 2013. It was sometime after the rights came out, and um. The way that the show starts is that uh, Frank is being uh, like it starts at the end. Frank is being chased by the FBI. He's being chased by Carl Hanratty and all of his uh, and all of his and all of his uh, minions, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, his men, shall we say? And he gets cornered, and they basically tell him, "All right, you've got nowhere to run, and you've got all these people watching. You're not putting on a show for these people." And Frank just stops right there, gets an idea, and he suddenly is like, "Wait." 
maybe I can put out a show for these people. <laughs> so it so it alternates back and forth throughout the course of the show between him breaking the fourth wall sometimes and then actually continuing with the story. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so that's actually the so there is a practical reason for the meta humor there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the uh, but the. Uh, stakes involved in that is that uh, he gets to perform his show for the audience, like his version of the story. And then at the very end, when everything is said and done, he will admit to Carl how he uh, how he got past the bar exam because there's no way in hell that he could have done that without cheating. Is this is this pop rock? Uh, it's a little more aligned with uh, I want to say maybe smooth jazz a little bit, okay. and. Uh, uh, I think another important uh, or maybe interest, uh, maybe more interesting thing to say is that it's actually written by the same guys who wrote the music for Hairspray, uh, Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman. And uh, if you're familiar with Hairspray, you know that that was uh, you know that was a sixty that was a sixties jazz. This one's a little more, this one's a little more uh, smooth and takes a little bit more liberties with some of its style, but it's mostly jazz songs. Like they have a lot of like they have a lot of trombone, they have a lot of uh, uh, jazz in the in the instrumentation, uh, saxophone in the instrumentation. Bossa Nova. Um, uh, Say that again. A little little Bossa Nova going on with the mother. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I think uh, a couple, like, I have a ton of favorites in this show, uh, including but not limited to um, Pinstripes, uh, Jet Set, Butter Out of Cream, Little Boy Mm -hmm. Be a Man, and uh, Seven Wonders. Uh, but goodbye, I feel is the uh, is probably like the uh, go to is probably the go to song because it's like um, I think it ties into one of your uh, next uh, questions that you have list here. It says, uh, "Why is this not the end?" Uh, because he's finished. Uh, he's finished with the show, so now he's uh, just breaking character at this point to say, uh, "Yeah, now I'm now I'm done performing. Now you uh, get what you want." Because there is one song after that. But it's a narrative thing between him and Carl. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And and I'm I'm curious in that fact, which is like the whole show. I mean, something that that might might feel like it's a little feel tough for me is that it always feels like there's women who always want to sleep with him for some reason. Yeah. Um, have you have you thought about that? Like, it just feels like there's something off about that. But like, is that the sex appeal of the show? I think again, going back to the whole meta thing, it's like you know, if if we're looking at it from the perspective of this is Frank telling his own story, he's obviously exaggerating that part of it to make it more interesting for himself. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I find that interesting. It's just it's so it's so far out there, but it's like something that's just kind of interesting too. Um, I want to ask you something about the music, which which is I I love the fact that. It is so meta. I love that it's so in your face, and I love that it like kind of gets at like every single aspect of, of life, and that is so cool. And Mary said it before. I am a slam poet, um, so if you if you if you don't mind, I'm gonna read a little bit of the end, and I want to toss it your way. But okay. here's, here's what's interesting about it, because he says, "End can be my start, not my life, and I want to stop playing a part. I'm tired of living on the stage, a life that's only on the page." Empty lies are in the past. I've tried before, but here's the last goodbye. Almost, I mean, I don't want to compare these these writers to Shakespeare, but in a way, sort of almost like that, like uh, the whole, all worlds a stage kind of affect. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so what is your what is your take on that i mean we've talked about meta extensively but but like the musical genre of of you know playful jazz versus what's sort of happening here do you feel like he has been able to just move on from that and just and just almost like see that he's ready to take that next step or do you think he's just kind of playing a part as he's saying uh throughout the entire course of the show he has definitely been playing a part and now that he's come to the end of it he's uh bidding this part of himself uh no pun intended he's bidding this part of himself goodbye so that uh so that way he can uh continue so that way he can continue to grow into this uh new um honest version of himself because uh, the the way that he does wrap up the very uh very end of the next song, he basically admits he's like, okay, well, I paid back all the money, just uh just well, just uh with a very minimalistic amount of effort. Like it took a lot more more than that. It took him, and it it is based on a true story. And it took the real Frank Abagnale. I want to say it took him about maybe seven and a half years to pay back all those bad checks that he passed. <laughs> um, but he did. Uh, he has been. Uh, he had been working for the FBI ever since that. Uh, ever since he did turn himself in. So. Um, can, I, can I can I ask you one more question, Carl, before I toss it over to uh, Mary, which is able to ask Frank any question at all. What would it be? If I were to ask Frank Abagnale Jr. any question about any question about his heist, I would definitely have to ask him. What was the hardest part about impersonating a pilot? Because he relatively seemed to have pre- uh, ease with uh, impersonating a uh, doctor and a lawyer, but impersonating a, impersonating a pilot and knowing how an airplane works just does not seem like common knowledge. <laughs> as most of the, as most of the things you wouldn't like. I work at a regional uh, driver's licensing office, so I know a lot about uh, so I know a lot about a lot about driving laws. But somebody walks in, they just like suddenly they suddenly don't know anything. We're going to be able to spot that. So the fact that he was able to do that pretty seamlessly. But that's like the aspect that I was most interested in was his uh, was his run with the Pan Am. Um, so actually, I'm going to pass it over to Mary. But before I do that, I'm going to pass it over to Hunter because Hunter, I want you to say the name of the musical. Yeah, I was going to request that actually. And I really need it. I need the like dramatic reading of an Italian word, my friend. Sure. So the name is Fiorello. I'm sorry, we didn't get that. One more time? One more time. I believe that's Fiorello. <laughs> With a maybe, a maybe a little bit of a roll of an R, my friend. Oh, but they don't do that. Ah! Yeah, the Italians okay. do not roll their R's, my friend, so. <laughs> These are lies. Okay. okay. Well, um, anyways, I will not roll my R. Fiorello. Uh, <laughs> see, there you go. Oh, Mary. Oh, <laughs> Americana. But anyways, so uh, Carl, you, you picked uh, politics and poker from this particular musical. And for those of you that don't know, um, Fiorello is about uh, New York uh, Mayor LaGuardia from the uh, 50s and 60s. So it takes us way 30s. back. Uh, 30s. <laughs> Yeah, much different than what we've got before. And in my mm-hmm. opinion, um, this is one I didn't know until you sent this list. And I actually went and watched like most of it or or like listened to most of it. And this is one of those that for me, I feel like it has it all because it's it's trying to check a box in some ways. And I'm sure mm-hmm. we'll get there. But um, the first question that I have for you is of everything that is in this musical, Politics and poker is um, one of the uh, 
<laughs> tamer ones, I think. So um, anyways, what, what's your concept of this piece? Do you think it's funny? Do you, what do you think of this one? I think the first uh, two songs in the show, uh, the first, well, one is just the overture, which just plays in the beginning. The first song in the show was called On the Side of the Angels, which is literally just people coming into uh, Fiorello's office and he, uh, and just like asking him for help. And then his employees literally singing his praises about what a good man he is to work for. Politics and Poker is only the, is only the if you want to get technical about it, it's only the second song in the show but I feel very strongly it's the first one that actually gets the plot moving. And yeah. it does so with incredibly, incredibly minor characters. Uh, the guy, the main character uh, who sings in this one is called, is his uh, uh, character is uh, Ben Marino. He's a relatively important character to, to the plot. And uh, all of his minions that are singing are called, uh, and this is based on uh, the the actual script that I actually uh, that I actually perused from MTI's website, um, Musical Theater International. Uh, they're referred to in the script as hacks, <laughs> political hacks, and really? there's um, and uh, their whole and the, obviously the whole thing with uh, them is that uh, it's an upcoming election year. They're trying to pick a candidate to uh, uh, to get a congressional bid. And uh, nobody seems interested in it because, as the title implies, they're much more interested in playing poker than actually doing any work. <laughs> so, um, the Hacks and uh, Ben have three songs in the show. Their most famous one is towards the end of the second act. It's called Little Tin Box. But as I said, I feel like this one is the one that really does get the plot going. Because uh, halfway through it, um, this isn't in the cast recording, as I'm sure it wouldn't be, because it would just drag it out. But in the middle of the scene, Fiorello comes into the uh, comes into the hacks uh, poker table, basically, and says, "I want the nomination. Uh, uh, I'm going to run for Congress for you guys." And they're like, "Eh, sure." <laughs> and they walk out. He walks out, and then they finish the song. <laughs> and um, from that moment onward, just uh, just things start to pick up. All the momentum gets going, and uh, yeah, it basically is the it basically is it, it's a starting it's a starting point for that because it doesn't actually start with Fiorello becoming mayor. That's how the show ends. Uh, it goes through all it goes through four major checkpoints in his life. The first one is when he uh, runs for Congress uh, starting in 1918 oh, yeah. or 19. That when he came first. And, yeah. and then uh, the second part is when he uh, joined the army and worked his way up to uh, uh, the rank of major, and then. Um, in the middle of this, he met his first wife, Taya Almaragati, and uh, then uh, married her after he came back from the war. And then, um, and then after, uh, and then after he marries her, the show ends with his first mayoral uh, run against Jimmy Walker, which mm -hmm. <clears throat> doesn't go the way that he expects. But the show ends with him finally being elected uh, mayor in uh, 1933 or 34. Yeah. Um, but. But the, the but the critical first step is uh, when he goes into the when he goes into the um, when he goes into the poker game and he basically puts his neck on the line saying I'm the guy for the job and I have nothing to fear so yeah well one of the things I wanted to ask you about this one I I think um, musical irony is just everywhere um, even when even in elevator music people just don't realize and so. In particular, politics and poker, it, it's written as a waltz, right? Mm -hmm. And um, some of the uh, like sounds in, in it, they're very, um, 
like humane. They're, they're normal sounds you would expect. And I personally think that it, it's, it's downplayed in some ways. Maybe it's due to the fact that minor characters are on stage somehow, but it just wraps itself into the cynicism of politicians. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, go, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, uh, like, uh, of most of them, like, and I'm, I'm going to say, I like Little Tin Box a lot, too. But I, I think politics and per- poker is actually uh, funnier on a deeper level, at least personally. And it's because of what the music does underneath it all. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of call and response, um, but through the waltz. So um, what's your take on, like, the waltz feel and, and how it speaks to, um, like, the concept? It feels very much like, uh, and I, I know a lot of musicals do this too. I think any, I think any common person will, uh, who you know watches a, who watches them uh, as frequently as uh, as frequently as I do would pick up on this. But it seems to be, and uh, this could also be uh, part of uh, this could have also be uh, because it has something to do with uh, the guys who wrote it, uh, Bach and Harnick, who. Uh, while probably not household names, uh, I think most people will recognize them. They're the same uh, duo that wrote Fiddler on the Roof. Mm-hmm. And uh, the and Fiorello is very similar to that show in the regard of they have a specific style of music for individual characters. Yeah. Uh, because because uh, the hacks always have uh, something waltzish. Uh, Marie's always got something that's... Um, Always got something that's um, bombastic and angry and something like that. Um, Taya's two big songs are very slow uh, ballads. They're very sweet. They're very tender. They're very high soprano. And um, anything that has to do with anything that has to do with moving the plot forward suddenly becomes a march. Mm-hmm. So, so I think the fact that he gives them uh, the fact that he gives a, a, the that he gives the hacks the waltz type uh, that they did that. I think that kind of ties into this fact of um, you know they're do, they're being very smooth they're being very but they're being very metric they have to they def, have to do everything quite literally by the numbers. Left, right, 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 left, yep. left. That's right. And uh, just as a side note, my favorite uh, lyric in politics and poker is the very first chorus: "Politics and poker, politics and poker, shuffle up the cards and find the joke." <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I liked this one. And um, didn't um, didn't Pirello win a Tony? What, I know they, there it, was a Tony and then... Uh, yes, it actually, in 1960, it actually tied with the Sound of Music for the Tony Award for Best right. Musical. So, uh, but, you know, I guess people like the Sound of Music more because they find it more relatable or find the music more recognizable. Honestly, I don't really agree with that. I'm not really a big fan of the sound of music, even though it's like, even though it's like one of the most iconic shows ever made. <laughs> John would say it's because scales. Yeah, <laughs> I would have to agree with that. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, no, yeah, but yeah, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff to read into with Fiorello, but a lot of it, but a lot of it is uh, like the a lot of it does have to tie into how great the music is. And it is available for uh, perusal on NPI's website, uh, so you can uh, so you can take a, a gander at that and see how, just how great the dialogue is as well. Because there's no uh, like because there's no um, uh, recording of it. There's never been a film version of it or anything, Mm-mm. which I think there is. It is it is high time they do create one. 
Yeah. Uh, it's been around since 1959, and uh, there's a ton of other like really obscure musicals that have film adaptations as well. So I feel like this would be right up their alley. Like even if it has to be like a even if it has to be like an Apple TV release or something. Yeah, and um, I was also gonna say this also won a Pulitzer Prize for drama in in 1960, and like there's only like ten shows that have been given that award. So, oh yes. Would you like to know what they are? Oh, do you know them? Uh, not right off the top of my head, but I do know uh, three of them. I do know a couple of them off the top of my head. I know that Rent has a Pulitzer. I know that um, uh, South Pacific has a Pulitzer. Surprisingly okay. enough, How to Succeed in Business has a Pulitzer. <laughs> well, that's uh, just, that's like, and I, you know, the business world, mm-hmm. that whole aesthetic uh, is so iconic. Fun fact about, a uh, side story about uh, How to Succeed in Business. It was the show that uh, my high school did when I was a sophomore. And the guy who played Finch in that production, he understudied Alex Brightman these past couple years as Beetlejuice on Broadway, and he actually played about three weekends ago filling in for Alex, so he actually got to play Beetlejuice on Broadway. For oh, how nights. cool. Elliot Maddox is the guy's name. Really? Yep, and he was um, he was Finch in uh, that school production of How to Succeed in Business, and he more or less inspired me to start doing theater. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, I got one more thing about Fiorello. So, um, oh, where did it go? I had it written down. Oh, so on, on the front of there has been no adaptation of this, which, you know, with uh, the New West Side Story and um, it, there are multiple re-adaptations of, of things coming out. But I do wonder why this one has not been done. Um, and I, I kind of wonder, because... <laughs> It, it has so much relation to the current p- political climate as well. Um, so I, I wonder if this one is kept under under rocks for reasons, but I would love to see this redone. And because of that, I wanted to ask you who um, like your ideal um, Neil would be. Uh, or Fiona. Uh, I would have to say the ideal of uh, the ideal Fiorello would have to be Daniel Day Lewis because <laughs> he would because uh, there is so much there is so much that he would put into that uh, so much that he would put into that performance and I know a lot of people are usually turned off by him because they usually because uh, they usually associate him with like screaming and stuff <laughs> but one of his biggest uh, things that he admitted in an interview is that um, you know he spends a lot of time getting into the roles that he prepares for. Uh, so that way he always seems to be a different person every time he's on screen because he doesn't want any of those other characters to have anything in common. But uh, it's also just his method. He just does it because he finds it to do it. He finds, uh, he finds method acting to be a lot easier than if he just went into it blindly. And there is a lot of stuff to research about Fiorello from, you know, uh, you know his, his views, the way that he went to the world, uh, the way that he approached the political world. Even down to the fact of how the show opens, which begins with his uh, what most people know him for, which is him reading comic strips over the radio to children. <laughs> yep. So, so yeah, I think he would be the he would be an ideal choice. But um, yeah, uh, Fiorello is a giant, giant cast, so we'd have to get a lot of people to run that out as well. But you're yeah. right; that would be a perfect thing for today's uh, political climate. Yeah, I couldn't imagine. I mean, like. The New West Side Story was done like tail end of pandemic too, 
So, mm-hmm. you know, this is a massive cast. You're right about that. I hadn't realized. But um, no, I think it would I think it would tip some heads. Maybe, you know, musical comedy definitely has a place in this world. This one should have a, a new adaptation for sure. But mm-hmm. anyways, I am terrible with segues. So, Hunter, <laughs> <laughs> what you got, man? So jumping ahead now about, you know, 50 years, um, <laughs> we go, you know, 50, 60 years. We uh, arrive at the uh, a, a current adaptation, which is not the current current adaptation of the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, um, because the current one that's on Broadway is actually Hades Town. But this one is a little bit different, um, and it's called Jasper in the Deadland. And he chose the song "Living Dead" from it. And my comment, which you actually happened to touch upon earlier, is you seem to have a penchant for Ryan Scott Oliver. Uh, he is my favorite musical theater composer. What can I say? But uh, yeah, this one, um, this one is a. Uh, uh, he wrote this one a couple years after thirty-five millimeters. So I feel very strongly that he started to become more comfortable with writing shows in one specific style. Yeah. Uh, because this one, at its core, uh, no mistake about it, is a rock musical. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's actually the way that I was introduced to Ryan Scott Oliver firsthand. This is actually the first Ryan Scott Oliver musical that I discovered because really? I was trying to look for. Um, I was on um, uh, I was on Spotify or YouTube or something, and I uh, just looked up rock musicals, and I came across a playlist. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty broad, but you know, and I got a lot of the things that most people would have expected by from that. They uh, like I got things like. Uh, no, Rent or Rocky Horror or um, uh, Gre- or uh, uh, Dear Evan Hansen Jesus or stuff Christ like Superstar. that. Jesus Christ Superstar, yeah. Uh, you know, just uh, stuff like that. But on one of those playlists was Jasper in Deadland, and I was like, oh, wait a minute, this is a little different. So I looked up the story, and I was like, wait a minute, this is basically Hades Town. <laughs> and uh, as you as you said, but. Um, they take a bit of a different approach in that they don't directly uh, they don't directly make the characters the uh, people from the characters yeah. from the from the Greek myth, but they do touch upon other types of mythology and other mythological creatures that he encounters. So um, there was another thing that I was uh, that I came across when I was uh, looking into this. Uh, it was an interview that um, the original Jasper Matt Doyle did on Paul Wancherich's show on the Broadway Channel on YouTube. And he said it had kind of an Alice in Wonderland uh, feel to it. And then he was like, oh, wait, Alice in Wonderland, Jasper in Deadland. Ah, that that's that's parallel seems to be uh, seems to be pretty obvious when you think about it in that in that regard. But um, yeah, there's a yeah, there's a this is one that uh, kind of uh, the this is one that actually has a narrative that actually has a little bit of world building to it. Because it is at its core the basic story of uh, Jasper loses uh, his best friend Agnes to this, you know, uh, let's just call it what it is, this like corpse bride style <laughs> underworld <laughs> that is called Deadland, which is being run by, which is being run by uh, the main villain of the show, Mr. Leth, who I will play one day before I die. And um, his whole thing is that he has um, a river, which is clearly based on the river Styx, but he gets the... Um, but he gets the inhabitants of Deadland to drink his water because it makes them lose their memory constantly. 
and in comes Jasper into Deadland. And if he touches any of these residents, suddenly they get all their memories back. So he's so he's just trying to navigate this world and try to find a depressed friend and take her out of it, while this guy is trying to uh, keep his business thriving and make everybody still drink his water. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because there in Greek mythology there are the three rivers of the underworld. One of them is the River Lath, which um, might maybe was one because there's Styx Lath, and I forget what the third one is. Um, yeah. So, it, like you said, working the other mythological stuff in there. Um, and I noticed there was a character called Beatrix, um, Lady Beatrix, or Heavenly Beatrix, or whatever, which is like Dante's Inferno, which basically mm-hmm. is the, the character in that. Yeah. Uh, he does encounter a couple of others. He does encounter, like, the first character he encounters is uh, Virgil the Ferryman. And then okay. uh, he also and then he also encounters uh, Cerberus, and they have this really, really weird song called What is Life? <laughs> um, and then that, uh, that kicks off into Jasper's first big solo. And then uh, he eventually he meets Amit, and then he uh, way 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 late into the second act, uh, Agnes uh, gets dragged into a sweatshop, and she meets a character called Little Lou, who is clearly based on Lucifer, because <laughs> oh. towards the end of because towards the end of because uh, towards the end of his song he says something to the effect of, "If you can believe it, I was an angel once. Take like uh, I fell from grace, and just like you, I wound up here. This circle's a hell of a place. Now get back to work." <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's a that's a very clever mm-hmm. use of lyrics. Um, mm-hmm. But it's funny that you mentioned uh, that interview with uh, I forget who was on the Broadway channel. Oh, one right. Because yeah, about it being like the the parallels to Alice in Wonderland or a, a similar thematic uh, idea. Because when I listened to this song, Sean and I had just done a um, had just done a podcast on on the musical Alice by Heart, um, which is also supremely obscure. Um, would you believe and me if not- I told you I know someone who was in that show? Would you? <laughs> yeah, Colton Ryan. He and I actually went to high school really? together. <laughs> wow, how funny is that? Yeah, uh, continue your story, though. <laughs> oh, no, it was just the the style of music. So Duncan Shake and... Um, uh, uh, Glenn Slater. Yes. He... Um, wait, I feel like I mixed up those names. Was that right? No, yeah, it's Duncan Shake and Glenn Slater. <laughs> yeah, Duncan Shake Yeah, Glenn Slater. Um, Right, they also did, I believe, what, Spring Awakening, I think? Yes, um, Spring Awakening. Which that was their it's funny because I'm not a big fan of Spring Awakening, but I do very much like Alice by Heart. But it's funny because that was what popped into my head when I was listening to this. Um, and then, lo and behold, you make that connection. I'm like, oh my God, it's fate. Um, <laughs> but that was very much what the, the vibe I got from it was. Um, and having said that, the story of of you know Orpheus and Eurydice and the way it's adapted in this particular show, um, just thematically in terms of like because both shows have a similar approach musically, what what do you think is the reason for that? Like what about those two stories? Because they're clearly not quite the same thing, but there seem to be a lot of comparisons. So musically, why do you think that is, or what 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 affect does it give? I feel like uh, for, you know, um, you know, for uh, topics that have to do anything with intimacy, that's usually, uh, you know, if it's even if it's just like, you know, friendship, love or in the Spring Awakening, obviously a big theme of um, a big theme of uh, Spring Awakening is, you know, having the wrong view of having the wrong view of, um, you know, something you're not supposed to know about before you're ready to grow up. Um, I feel like a very, very easy way to do that is to make is to make that music. Uh, very pulsating, very angsty. 
and I feel like that's uh, like most of that is there because uh, a lot of the because a lot of the songs in Jasper and Deadland do come across as relatively angry. Uh, is more so in the lyrics, more so the, rather than the, uh, the or- instrumentation. But there are a few, uh, there are a few, in- uh, there are a few instrumentations like, like Living Dead. That's like, uh, okay, this is basically like, this is the the pinnacle song where it's like everything is everything is great, everything is partying, like you're never gonna get out of here. And uh, they have all kinds of uh, they have all kinds of different they have all kinds of different viewpoints about you know we like it down here, we don't really want to leave. And uh, Jasper takes that opposite approach to that, just kind of similar again to Spring Awakening. How you know uh, Melchior is taking the opposite approach to uh, you know everything else around him. He's rebelling, and uh, Jasper is also rebelling in the uh, you know in this unfamiliar territory because he he wants to accomplish his goal. And it's funny you mentioned that because I don't like Spring Awakening either. I had a period of time where I was obsessed with it, and there was a. Uh, shall we say, less than caliber production I saw of it in 2014 that kind of made me go, wow, this is actually hot garbage. <laughs> so, uh, which is also funny because I've actually met Jonathan Groff on occasion, uh, but like in passing more so than anything. He uh, he was at um, uh, the University of Kentucky and uh, the people who were in charge of the theater department at the time were actually um, swings on Broadway for a little while and they knew Jonathan and they uh, contacted them to come down and workshop their production of Spring Awakening with them. I happened to be in the building at the same time hauling a concert tuba out of the, out of the uh, music department. He came across me in the hallway and he was like, yeah, that looks heavy. Need some help, handsome? <laughs> uh, yeah, Jonathan Groff. Like, I had no idea who he was until after that encounter, but yeah, he was just the sweetest person that you could ever hope to encounter. But yeah, going back to Jasper and Deadland for a little bit, the... Um, yeah, the music in this one, uh, even though it is a rock musical, it does diversify slightly. There are a few ballads in it, but even then, uh, the instrumentation is mostly aggressive because it uh, will either end with it will either end with uh, harsh-ish lyrics or it will end with a high belt, one of those mm-hmm. two. And in, in cases like Living Dead or Awful People or um, <clears throat> most other things, like it'll end with that, it'll, like it'll end with a high belt or a harsh lyric which is uh, a great contrast to the very last song in the show, One More Day of Snow, where it has high belts in the beginning, but the closer it gets to the end, it starts to soften down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, because it's just, it's funny, as you're describing it, I'm, I'm comparing the two different shows together, um, Alice by Heart and this, and it's funny because the last song in Alice by Heart actually deals with, it's called Winter Blooms. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, oh, there's so many, so many comparisons. But opposite of what you just said in in Alice and by Heart, a lot of the songs just end. You know, mm-hmm. there's not like a there's not a gradual decrease. Sean and I were talking about this, how it's like there is no wrap up. It's just they they cut off, and that could be because of you know it's whatever's going on on stage. But it also could be since you mentioned the angst. You know, it's just like with that level of tension, sometimes there's no big release it, it sometimes it's just like lots of build 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 and then nothing comes of it you know what i mean so and that's what causes a lot of frustration i feel like it pent up emotions i'm a um i teach high school italian and uh as you i'm sure are aware with teenagers um in general i don't know how much i don't know how much you work with teenagers but um <laughs> they tend to just 
not ever explain themselves. They just do things. And then if they're really mad or whatever, you ask them why and they can't explain it. So I feel like those kind of emotions, it's just, it comes out in a song and then so that would be the explanation for Alice by Heart. Now this Jasper uh, Deadline maybe takes that and brings it to the next step. Like what is, okay, why are those things happening? If you say the end in a certain way, I don't know. I feel like I'm sort of babbling, but that's in my head, it makes more no, sense. No, no, it, no, it makes, no, it makes complete sense. And uh, yeah, uh, you're right in the regard. Like I'm not super familiar with Alice by Heart, but the few songs that I did listen to, I do agree. They do have a tendency to uh, not really have a satisfactory ending. They just seem to kind mm -hmm. of stop. Uh, and I also have that same problem with Spring Awakening, is that uh, those songs don't stop, but there's not a single song in Spring Awakening that if you listen to it on its own, you would be able to gather the story. Like, none of the songs in Spring Awakening move the plot forward. They're all emotional power ballads. Jasper and Deadland walked both of those lines perfectly by actually knowing how to end their songs. Like, Ryan Scott Oliver knows how to end a song. Uh, he knows how to give it. He knows how to give it a, a final, you know, final resolution. How to give it, how to give it that um, satisfactory ending, and uh, he also knows how to use it to move the plot forward. Because uh, in uh, the case of Living Dead, for example, uh, it starts with um, Gretchen saying, "Okay, but if you uh, we don't find your friend, uh, if we find your friend, she's having too good of a time to leave." Uh, you can't blame me. And then halfway through the third verse, uh, Jasper is suddenly like not singing. He's suddenly just like searching through the crowd going, hey, I'm looking for my best friend. Has anybody seen her? While uh, Gretchen's still in the background, still singing. And she's like, hmm, well, maybe I should try to lend him a hand. And that in and of itself is just storytelling in a nutshell. Like that for me is the purpose of music and a musical. If it's not going to... If it's if it's going to be an emotional power ballad, it has to be justified in the fact that they can't express themselves in any other way except music. And if they're going to have a song just in the middle of a scene, it has to do something to move the story forward. So very very Sondheimish, right? Because yeah. that was something he brought to musicals was that the the songs not being just the advancement of emotion, but the songs are the plot advancement. Mm -hmm. So, and he also had the same. He there's a really really interesting video of him talking about when he was composing Sweeney Todd, and he's writing the song. Um, he's writing the song uh, Pirelli's Miracle Elixir, yeah. and uh, the first thing he noticed is the fact that the name of the product is Elixir, so that gave him all kinds of opportunities to rhyme Ixer, Trixer, Nixer, et cetera, et cetera. But he also says in that same in that same little uh, snippet of the video that uh, the purpose, the function of that scene is that Sweeney has to come onto the scene, establish his reputation, and then gain a customer base. Because if that doesn't happen in the course of the song, then the plot can't move forward. Right. So, so. Oh, that's an interesting, interesting observation. I think it's definitely necessary for, you know, quality musical writing, um, but something that definitely evolved over time on how people went about that. Uh, now, with that, we're going to take a quick break, sponsored by our friends at Anchor. If you'd like to support this podcast, please go to anchor.com. You can also search Music Speaks Podcast on multiple listening platforms, such as Apple Music, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, and many more. Uh, we'll be right back. Ha, ha, ha. That's the first time I've used that. Don't go anywhere. More music on its way with, uh, I believe, some candor and ebb. So we will be right back. My name is Sean Ramkunis. And mine's Hunter Sagona. And I'm Mary Haddix-Hermans. 
So don't forget to keep listening to what you love.